Don't worry about a thing. Cause Atticus Health will make you feel alright. Don't worry about a thing. Cause Atticus Health will make you feel alright. If you got a tummy ache, or you don't feel right. Or if you have a nasty rash, keeping you up at night. Don't worry, don't worry about a thing. Don't worry. Cause Atticus Health will make you feel alright. I'm Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country, and welcome back for another episode of Radio Architecture with Ilana Rasbash. We are broadcasting to you live from the Karam Karam Swamp on beautiful Bunurong country tonight. My guest this evening is Rachel Yampolsky, and I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional lands on which she does most of her research. That's the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung country of the Eastern Kulin Nations. Rachel is a researcher, creative producer, and higher education professor, professional interested in the design and governance of more spatially just cities. Rachel is completing a PhD in Urban Geography at the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT University, where she also teaches in the planning faculty. She recently contributed writing and commentary to key publications and forums, including The Conversation, ABC Radio, Planning News and the Festival of Urbanism. Rachel presently works in the Community Engaged Learning in community engaged learning and research space while also running her own tactical placemaking platform, Public Street. She is a representative for the Australian Cities Research Network, an early career advisor of public space for the UNESCO partner organisation City Space Architecture and a founding member of the Alliance for Praxis Research. She is experienced in both bottom-up and top-down styles of governance, but believes in the power of a mode that sits between both these approaches with a focus on evidence-based, future-focused and socially just policymaking. Rachel was the Greens candidate for the Victorian 2022 state elections for the District of Caulfield. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Well, the first question I ask all my guests is what's your earliest memory of a building or place? Yep. I think my earliest memory would be the stairwell of the apartment that I was born in or grew up in, um, which was a classic 60s brick um, three-storey apartment block in Caulfield. It was one bedroom and I, we lived there. It was me, my parents, and then later my brother 
and my mum's students, because she was a tutor, all in one bedroom apartment. Anyway, but I don't remember the apartment that well, but I remember the stairwell vividly to the apartment. It was terrazzo marble. I would assume faux looking back at it now, but I didn't know the difference at the time. I just remember it was, you know, had all these specks in it. Um, and I just, yeah, it was white with orange and red and brown terrazzo specks. And I remember sometimes pretending to have fallen asleep in the car because I didn't want to walk the three flights up. So like, if I pretend I'm asleep, my dad would carry me into the house, into the apartment. And so I remember pretending to be asleep as he's carrying me looking down and seeing the terrazzo marble <laughs> stairs. Out of the corner of your eye, yeah. just cheekily. Yeah, so I would assume somewhere like I was somewhere around two or three. Yeah. It's super popular now as well. People yeah. would people would die for that terrazzo. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So interesting you mentioned the stair is your first memory. Yep. Because you do research and your PhD at the moment mm. is largely on liminal spaces. Yeah, I didn't even make that connection. That's a good point. And the staircase is liminal. Yeah. It's a liminal space. Indeed. What does liminality mean? What is a liminal space? Yeah, great question. Um, so liminality is just basically a concept that refers to um, something that is in between things. Um, so, you know, people talk about the um, liminal space as a concept. You know, people be like, oh, I'm, I'm – maybe I'm sitting in this kind of liminal space while I'm waiting to find out whether my visa got approved or something like that. We're not quite in one country or another. And then, of course, it can also refer to um, physical spaces, so stairwells as being the in-between, in an apartment block as being the in-between space. If you have your apartment and your private sphere as one space and the outside world, the street as another kind of very obviously understood registered space, the liminal space would be the one in-between i.e. the stairwell um, or, you know, the entryway, et cetera. So I think these are these kind of – when you start paying attention, they're all around us. But they only really exist conceptually if we have an idea of what is considered space and what isn't considered space. And so if we have this – you know, if we can register the street as a space, if we can register our apartment as a space, but for some reason we don't register the stairwell as a space, it therefore falls into this liminal category. But if you viewed the stairwell as a space, it wouldn't technically – be a liminal space, would it? So we have a couple more definitions to tease out there, yeah. I think, for tonight's listeners as well. Yep. But a balcony yep. is also a liminal space, right? Um, I, well, no, so that's an interesting one. I would consider personally a balcony um, a threshold space because it sits um, halfway between the public realm and the private realm, which is that it sits between your apartment and the street. Um, however, if you're viewing it from the street, the balcony, you might view that as a liminal space because you're not quite looking into someone's apartment, but you're not quite looking at the street either. I think Does that makes sense? Oh, totally. Yeah. I think in the last few years, we definitely all felt and learnt the importance of these yeah. in-between Absolutely. spaces, yeah. these half inside, half outside, where can I get fresh air when I can't leave my house? Where can I sit when I'm not feeling well, these inside-outside moments? Exactly. So then what constitutes the difference mm. between a space and a place, mm. and often, particularly in your research circles, I know it's quite a, a complicated question. Yeah, maybe I might offer my my thought on it. Yeah, and, and you, you tell me how that how that sits in your, um, in your research. Yep, um, I think so. Um, a space, you know, the co commonly accepted definition of how you, of a space versus place is that a space is purely the physical 
constraints like it's it's purely the physical four walls of a room or um a physical landscape or etc um whereas a place is what happens when that space a physical space is activated by people by memories or by associations you hold um and that's when it sort of transitions from a space into a place so really space is um you know, with sans people, without people, um, or the impact that people have had, the legacy, even if they're not physically in the space at the time. So, yeah, that, I think that would probably be the most common working definition, if you will. <laughs> That's definitely how I've always thought about yeah. it. The pl- it bec- a space becomes a place when people bring their life exactly. and their energy yeah. and their passions and their activation. Yeah. And maybe this idea of then do these places have memories and an intangible cultural heritage? Yeah, or- absolutely. And and those things don't have to be positive, right? And they don't, it could be, you know, you can you can have a, a negative mem- memory of a place, uh, of a space, of a building, for example, and in your mind it's therefore now a place because you've associated a negative memory. Even if um, it's derelict, like it feels like there's no people around, but there's a feeling that you as a person have now assigned to it. It's sort of turned into a place, if you will. It transforms with our memories. Exactly, yeah, with our memories, associations, exactly. Um, so some people, some if you, like not to get too academic about it, but there are some academic theories that would, um, like some of the foundational theories in, in research that look at this topic, that would say um, uh, place is purely space just viewed through the lens of a person, if that makes sense. So when you put it through a human lens, that's when it becomes a place. I think I really felt that when I went travelling before the pandemic and I was in Japan mm. and I went into those tiny little bars in Kabukicho that oh, get yep. like only five people yep. and I truly experienced that definition because as an architect I walk around cities and buildings yep. constantly looking at it. Yes. Constantly looking at it as a building, as an object, as, sure. a, as, a, design. as a room, as design. Yep. yep. And then – when, sometimes when you travel mm-hmm. and you change your mindset and you, you say, oh, well, today I'm not looking at the greatest building in the world today. I want to feel what it's like to be in one of the most famous right. rooms in the world. Yep. And I had that moment and I was in one of these bars very fortunately because I was with a Japanese language speaker mm-hmm. um, where it was members only basically. Yep. And I got to feel what it was like in one of those really unique rooms where – Everyone knew each other mm-hmm. and they were there because of their cultural interests. They were all music- musicians and writers and poets. And that's when that definition became so so black and white for me. Mm-hmm. So then part of your work is Praxis, mm-hmm. Alliance for Praxis Research. Mm-hmm. Um, and Praxis is the, the practical manifestation of yep. theories and ideas. Yep. Um, along with that and your work with Public Street, mm-hmm. your organisation, um, you're really interested in placemaking and you've had some really fantastic installations and activations oh, most, <laughs> most recently at the Queen Victoria Market, if anyone was lucky to pop by and see it. Um, yeah. Biorhythm. Biorhythm, yeah. Biorhythm with beautiful lights and sound. And, yeah, and plants. immersive plant sculpture. Yep. Exactly right. So I wanted to ask about what is the importance mm-hmm. of actively doing placemaking work and deciding that that is necessary. Mm -hmm. And I also am curious as to where does that come for you in the process? Is that placemaking that happens before a building is built? Do you think that's important or do you think placemaking 
in many ways has been a remedial effort for you that mm. there's been a situation in a city mm-hmm, and you've mm-hmm. and it's not quite right or in a suburb yep, yep. or a local area and you had to come in and fix it up. So tell us tell us about placemaking. Yeah, great question. Um, I think for me definitely the way I view it anyway, and that's just from my personal professional lens, but there's that's not to say it's the only way you can approach placemaking, certainly. Um, but for me it definitely does come from the remedial lens. Um, I think when it is used as a tool in uh, the design phase, it's more, in in that sense, it's more just about human-informed design principles rather than specifically placemaking, and that should be the goal in general. Like, that should be the golden standard we're aiming for. I certainly think yeah. so. I, I believe buildings are for people. Exactly. And so that's, um, like, when people talk about placemaking um, be, being built from the ground up, I'm like, well, I don't know if that's really placemaking or if that's just good design at that point. Oh, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's a good, that's a yeah. really interesting critique. So it's for really me, I, I'm more interested in it as, as in that remedial sense, okay, we've got the built forms that we have and they're not serving us the way that they should be. So um, that's when I think placemaking is a really interesting tool to come in and play around with that and find ways to improve it. And I'm also really interested in it as an advocacy tool as well. Um, So I think to me, it's hugely important. I think placemaking has sort of where, you know, the origins of placemaking um, are contentious because some people say, well, what you're just describing good design or you're just describing landscape architecture or you're just describing, human informed design thinking like what what about this is placement like where's that delineation um and that's you know that's valid critique i'm not arguing but um i think for me placemaking has come about as a as a prominent movement now um distinctly as a result of gaps in design thinking and design outcomes um and i say design in the broader sense i don't just mean architectural policy as well policy absolutely policy policy. governance exactly right um urban planning design landscape infrastructure infrastructure, exactly all of it just generally how we design the environments that we live in in the broader sense of the word from all facets and so there's um so many holes in that process and there's so many conflicting forces that have other agendas than just good livable outcomes for people um and as a result i think and people feel that people feel the impacts of that and placemaking i think has come around so prominently as a as a as a result of that people trying to be like okay how can we remedy these what what are other things we can be doing um it's almost like an instinct you know it's almost like a instinctual sort of knee-jerk reaction to that outcome um well it's it's sort of like when the if the instinct hasn't quite worked if the creation of the space hasn't been intuitive enough yep to or or consultative enough exactly co-designed enough Mm -hmm. to lead and spur on the use and enjoyment and life in that space yep place making helps re-inject it you're like yeah you're the kombucha starter exactly absolutely and so that's why for me I do see it and where the space I'm interested in is that remedial space however I think um you know the principles that can be learned from how it's used remedially should absolutely then be used for when it's um, ground up design, you know, we can learn a lot of lessons from placemaking and, and also from tactical urbanism, which is essentially placemaking, but led by citizens. So really informally, very lo-fi um, interventions, largely out of necessity, like people painting, uh, you know, um, pedestrian crossings onto the road where there isn't one, for example, that's usually what tactical urbanism is. And so I think um, the instinct for why we want it and the kind of design principles that people play around with when they do it, I think are really useful learnings for 
improving design when you're doing it from the ground up. But yeah, largely I see it as remedial. And um, I'm also really interested in it as an advocacy tool because if you're only ever doing it at the citizen level or at this sort of filling in the gaps level, you're not really achieving um, structural change. And so I think any placemaking you do, well, not any, but when you do successful placemaking projects, you should be trying to push those as examples, as case studies, to advocate for those better design principles in the first place, um, including through to government, which is sort of how I ended up increasingly in the political space because I was like, well, it needs to come from both ends. But, um, yeah. So you ran for local government and for state <laughs> government. And I, I really I really admire that because I listened – it was a conversation many moons ago mm. I had heard and a prominent um, scientist and science communicator was mm -hmm. being interviewed on the radio, mm -hmm. I think, and they were saying, well, why'd you do this? Why'd you run for the Senate? Mm. You didn't get in. Mm. And he said, because good people with expertise in this field that we care about have mm. to go in and have to go forward and put our hat in the ring. Mm -hmm. So congratulations on putting your hat in the ring. And you had a bit of an upswing, actually, didn't you? Yeah, got a, yeah I think yeah got a little increase from the previous one, uh, from the you know, previous election, um, which was great. And, you know, I was running in a seat that's been held by the Liberals for all 70 years since its inception um so I knew it's realistically you know it's I'm not good we knew we're not going to win but that's not why we were running we were running exactly for the reasons you were saying and that you know it's about um spotlighting the issues that you care about um and sort of creating very slow groundswell with sort of this longer vision in mind um many many elections away realistically until we're seeing the kind of change we want to see but, you know, you have to start somewhere. And, and yeah, exactly right. I kind of would describe myself as a reluctant candidate in that I never wanted to run. I still don't want to run, <laughs> but I felt like I had no choice. You know, so, like, if you, if you want to see the kind of stuff you want to see being talked about and spotlighted and, and people have an option to tick it on a ballot, you need to put that onto a ballot. Absolutely. Yeah. And you also contributed to policy writing. So yeah. you've been absolutely in the thick of the political process. Yeah, exactly. And so I think it's it's not a place I ever saw myself. I saw myself very much as a behind-the-scenes person and a creative person. So this was a complete 180 for me and I still don't quite understand how it happened <laughs> or that it happened. I'm still shocked by it because um, it feels really unnatural to me. But at the same time, natural at the same time because I, you know, talk a lot about spatial justice. I talk a lot about the design of, of more equitable cities. And I've always thought about it from a bottom-up perspective, from like a citizen-led grassroots perspective. And that's only uh, as, as important as that is, and I will always be fighting in that space. I think um, it, it, it just – the outcome is going to be when the top down and the bottom up meet in the middle. And I was like, I'm not seeing the sort of – progress that I want to be seeing from the government sphere so you know why not just get amongst it basically yeah so I think yeah it was sort of it was it was it, I never saw it coming but looking back in hindsight it makes sense how I've ended up here because if you're talking about justice be it spatially or otherwise you, you're talking about law you're talking about policy you're talking about government so yeah there's no way around it unfortunately and design and <laughs> architecture has so many intersections with all that yeah no, architecture in many ways is, is everything. That's why we talk about these topics. That's why I have yeah, absolutely interesting multidisciplinary guests two weeks in a row so far. Yeah. They're interested in many, many things. I do want to give out the text number tonight if any guests mm. want to text in and yeah. have any questions for you. The number is 
213831. So give us a text in the studio. Don't call us, just text us. If you'd like um, to ask Rachel or contribute anything to the conversation. I'm also wondering, someone's listening at home tonight and they're thinking about, oh, I might run for government. Mm. I might go for council. Yeah. I might give it a go. What, it. what would you say to them? <laughs> I'd say do it. <laughs> I'd say absolutely do it. Um, no, no, but all jokes aside, I would I would say do it. <laughs> I would really say do it. I think there's so many um, – I completely understand why it's intimidating, but um, people really get am- amongst you. People, um, even if they don't necessarily align with your political – beliefs you know or etc um they're overall really supportive of people that put their hand up um and there is a lot of infrastructure in place a lot of support in place for first-time candidates um there's lots of programs specifically for women running for young people running people of color running there's lots of if you fit any of that criteria there's lots of programs um uh, and there's also lots of programs through the municipal association of victoria which is sort of the peak body for for government local government um they have lots of classes you can attend and they'll all be ramping up in the lead up to an election. So, which the local government is in October of next year. So there's still some time. So if you're anxious from that perspective, um, particularly if you're running as independent and don't have party backing, there's loads of infrastructure in place. And you, even if you don't win, you learn so much, you get connected with your community, you have the most interesting conversations with people, uh, you challenge yourself on a personal level, obviously, as well. So I think there's there's immense value in running if you're running with the right intentions and you're running with passion in mind, um, with with passion for your community in mind and good outcomes in mind. Uh, it, it, as I said, it, like winning is not the only metrics by which I think you can consider a campaign successful. It's about, like I said, starting that slow groundswell, having conversations with people and having an option for people on a ballot that's significant in itself. So even if you want to run um, just, to, just for that, and for the experience of it, that's still really successful, even if you're not getting necessarily the votes you're after. And, and you'll you'll end up, I guarantee if you do it, so many opportunities will come from it as well because you're just sort of now connected in the community and people know your face and your number now and you're going to get calls, I guarantee, for better or for worse. So um, I still have people sometimes emailing me asking about, you know, um, if I can do anything about the bins, the day the bins are being picked up from when I did local council elections in 2020 and I'm like honey I didn't get in I just but they remember you and they're like oh you're you know you were a candidate can you do something about the bins so anyway god bless but um but people will message for all kinds of things so you know it's, it's a really valuable experience yeah that's really good advice and I hope somebody who's been sitting on the fence or yeah itchy on the edge of their chair just takes the plunge and goes for it yeah and I think I had the real um re- I really thought oh well who am I to run you know I'm not sort of a middle-aged white man with a background in law and small business, like the classic image you have in your mind of a politician. Um, And then I looked up the rules of, you know, how to be eligible to run and you have to be over 18, registered to vote, um, registered to vote in the municipality that you're running and not been to jail in the last five years. And essentially if you've met those criteria, you're good to go. Be the change you want to see. Yeah, so there's really, there's no, like, you're you're suitable. If you think you're, if you want to do it, that's enough to be, suitable to do it basically so yeah i would encourage anyone to do it that's listening go for it yeah go for it dear listeners yeah get on board or at least um attend training and get a get a sense of what's involved you know look up the municipal association of victoria's training go along to a workshop or a webinar they host and you know get a taste for it at least see, see what you think before you commit because you don't have to commit formally on paper till 
right, like the eleventh hour before the election, so you got lots of time. I think that's really important information as well mm. because people don't often know that is that accessible. It's that, super accessible, exactly. That the political process is actually there for their participation. Exactly, in. Yep. democracy is yep. there for your participation. Exactly. And while we're on the topic, everyone should start gearing up to learn about and talk about the upcoming referendum. Mm-hmm for Indigenous recognition in the Constitution, while, while we have touched on the topic of the democratic process mm-hmm. because it is a, a privilege but very much a right and mm-hmm. you've got to be involved in it. At the very least, please vote. Yep. But oh, there's so many people in our local community here in Kingston mm-hmm. who are very passionate about this area, who are really passionate about their beachside suburbs mm-hmm. um, and in more inland suburbs as well who are getting involved in local community groups. My guest last week, Dr. Damien Williams, was the president of one of those groups. And not only would they be potentially interested in running in government and Mm -hmm. considering Mm -hmm. politics reluctantly, they also do a lot of their own grassroots placemaking work. Yeah, great. And I'm quite interested in what's your favourite placemaking project or tactical urbanism project that you've recently done. Can you describe that a little bit for us? Oh, that I've personally yeah, recently that done? Yeah, that you've done either yourself with Public Street or yep. with um, your Alliance for Praxis Research Collective. Hmm, that's a great question. Um, I think, uh, well, <laughs> uh, probably the most recent one that I can think of that was really uh, unexpectedly impactful like we we thought sort of did it thinking it wouldn't be you know it was just sort of a small project we were doing on the side and it ended up being quite impactful I guess for for us um was was a project with with the Alliance for Praxis Research um and publisher was a collaboration um and it was called Open Lab it was for Melbourne Design Week of last year and it was essentially a cupboard that we purchased off Facebook Marketplace and it is designed to be sort of like a tactical mobile placemaking unit so people can move it around and set it up to kind of create their own sort of infrastructure for social engagement whatever that looks like you know if you just what color was it can you describe the cupboard cupboard the cupboard was gray and it was very old it was very uh, no sorry it was well it was brown but it was graying um i think from being out in the rain for so long um someone was just throwing it away basically from it was really easily from the 70s vinyl and but on the inside we painted it essentially rainbow but in waves and we had hand tie-dyed fabric that pulled out onto a hills hoist so inside you open the cupboard and there's a hills hoist a mobile hills hoist that you put out uh it it stands out and then you connect fabric across it so you kind of create shade and then there was like a pull out picnic table there was you know soft furnishing there was rugs um cushions etc and lots of equipment to play with and we also used it as a mobile podcasting studio so we had people come and join us inside the space if you will for, for conversations around public space. And it was really fun because we put it in really – so it looked so janky. I mean, it really was very cheap. I think we did the whole thing for, I don't even know, no money at all. Um, it was all op-shopped or, or, or donated materials and it was very lo-fi. And we put it in places like Spring Street, 
we put a Spring Street right opposite Parliament. We actually had to get a permit um, to put it in a parking bay, which took months of negotiation with the city to get. And we put it on Gertrude Street. We put it in front of the art gallery. We put it in these quite sophisticated spaces, if you will, and quite formal spaces. And, it was, you know, it's a particularly great image looking at it opposite um, the Treasury Building on Spring Street. And people would walk past interested and confused <laughs> what it was and we had a sign saying you know this is for free to use like come on in like we had we had an a-frame that sat to, a, to the side and you could you know but people if we were in the space ourselves people would come up and chat and would be so interested and would you know poke around and use the space but if we left it unattended i.e left it for people to open and discover and play with people would definitely stop and look but were really resistant to use it mm. which was a super interesting um learning experience about the kind of uh there's sort of i think uh, in australia there's um we're very good at following rules <laughs> in Australia and we have a real respect of public and private space and that delineation and there's sort of this resistance of what, how to make spaces your own. We don't really play with, with our um, social infrastructure, uh, sorry, our physical infrastructure that much, public infrastructure. And I think this was an extension of that. We, we're very um, physically, uh, we're very, in terms of um, like, yes, our, our embodied engagement with spaces, we're very reserved as a culture, I think, uh, for better or for worse. And so there was, yeah, there was a real um, resistance from people. There was interest, but ultimately resistance to go ahead and use it because there was this perception, I guess, well, what if this is someone else's, even though we had a big sign saying it's free to use. Whereas when you saw other people using it, it sort of gave you the social license to come and engage. It was like, oh, okay, well, this is clearly okay to use because here are these other people using it. So it was, it was a really interesting um experiment in a way like a playful sort of experiment in public space that's a very interesting observation yeah so it's we we it's on wheels um so we still have it in storage um it was recently used at a queen vic market again um for an event someone was hosting an event there it was a conference for people in the gig economy and he was interested as a researcher from monash interested in using um creating uh spaces in the city for gig workers to be able to come and rest or charge their phone or get you know get a hot drink and he wants to basically build a space and this is hosting a, a symposium to kick this project off and they use the open lab there as, as a place for people to sit so you know it, it's it's doing the rounds it's getting some use but it's um it's also very clunky and heavy to move so we're gonna try to prototype another version that's a lot smaller and lighter and can be more mobile essentially but yeah it was it was a very interesting experiment but it was um ironically one of the cheapest easiest most sort of did, didn't have much thought into it beyond just, oh, let's do this fun thing. And I think that's usually where the best outcomes come from anyway. Yeah, there's really unexpected Exactly, ones. yeah, yeah, there's no pressure. and Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. You've done a lot of walking tours in the city as well. Yep. Love, I love walking tours. <laughs> I just love them. And I love doing um, derives, which is sort of this concept, uh, this French concept of walking without purpose. I think it translates – there's no direct translation, but loosely translates to drifting. That's what I've been told. I, mean, I'm not, I don't speak French, but I've been told it sort of loosely translates to drifting in that you're walking with no destination in mind, no aim. You're just going for a walk and you're meant to um, – the concept sort of encourages you to get disorientated and walk walk without a destination or without quite um, the geographic awareness of where you are. So that sort of allows you to disassociate from 
your expectations of what the city is or what the space that you're exploring is based on what you've known it to be. You can dissociate from that and sort of see it from this fresh lens, if you will. So we, we lead um, these sort of tours, we lead these derives where we, we go out with people. Um, so that's always fun. And uh, also I used to – I haven't done it for a little while now. I think the pandemic slowed stuff down, but we used to do um, – readings in public space we used to collect to do reading groups on on topics of public space in the public space that we're reading about so that was always fun but I have to yeah I have to get back into that I haven't done it in a little while actually if you want to go out reading in public space I'd love to. <laughs> let me know these interestingly these are all things people in the local community can pick up themselves yeah, absolutely they can go for a derivative have yep. you sometimes applied rules to your derivative? Yes, like yes. Like turn yep. right every... Exactly, because what happens is because we, the people that join in are so familiar with the, the city in that they're locals or have been here for a while, so we have to set rules to help with the disorientation, right? So it would be like, oh, yeah, exactly. Every time you get to an intersection, turn right. Um, if the street starts with a vowel, turn left. If it starts with a consonant, um, follow any smells, you know, like follow the sound of clanging, whatever. We'd set some rules um, to help to help disorientate. Uh, and you, you do you actually end up in the weirdest spaces you've ever been. And I think um, so that kind of stuff is 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 really fun. But I think in terms of um, placemaking projects that the, the community can get involved with, I think those kind of projects, like these these walking tours um, or derives reading groups, are really fun for uh, thinking about space um, from a new lens, exploring that topic. But if you're looking at projects that are making sort of more impact on your local community, then I th- what I would really advise people to to get their hands dirty with is tactical urbanism projects, which, like I said, are basically placemaking, but at a very low-fi level <laughs> and um, led by the community and very much with the idea of improving the outcomes of your local community and the public spaces around it. So a classic one is that people um, close off streets themselves. They just go out and buy – so it, 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 it involves – the sort of infrastructure and symbols of formal um, sort of infrastructure building and used strategically tact, you know, uh, um, with, you know, specific tactics in mind by citizens. So, you know, classic ones would be high-vis vests, so you look formal in what you're doing. Uh, traffic cones is a great one. Tape uh, and paint. So really simple interventions um, that have that sort of credibility of big infrastructure projects. And so if you've always wanted to close off your street, for example, to car traffic, to put on a, you know, like let's say a block party or something, and you can't be bothered going through all the permits and, and the whole rigmarole of going through the council to do it formally, you can't just put out some witch cones. <laughs> I was going to say that is a little bit of a cheeky solution. It is a cheek, and that's and that's, but that's what tactical urbanism is, right? It is a che- and guerrilla urbanism is a tax is a cheeky and strategic intervention in place of like a very bureaucratic, heavy system that limits citizens' ability to actually cultivate their own local spaces. So it's like, okay, well, maybe we can go around the rules a little bit, uh, but you do, but but I guess the other caveat is that it's done in ways that have no 
um, permanent implications on on the spaces around them and in infrastructure, right? So you're not doing any kind of permanent damage or anything that's not reversible. It's all temporary. It's all removable. So all it is is witches cones. You, you can move witches cones in a second if someone comes along a local laws officer and asks you to move your witches cones. So you, you know, so you can you can do that. Um, I'm slightly more intense one is to paint onto the road if you want to paint you know i've seen these great ones where people are trying to slow down traffic on their local street because cars are coming down really fast they've ridden to local council it hasn't been actioned etc and people just paint circles or shapes onto this road which naturally cause forces drivers to slow down because people will be like oh what is this so they end up driving a bit slower and so they've kind of taken making their street safer into their own hands. So there's lots of interventions you can do. And if it's something you're interested in and you're listening, I'd recommend Googling tactical urbanism examples and seeing there's so many great ones from all over the world. Um, and they're, they're just really simple and easy ways to do it. And I think if, yeah, if there's, if you've ever walked past this space and thought, oh, gee whiz, wouldn't it be better if it was like this or you could access this or this was closed off or whatever – there's probably a way you can try and do it yourself, at least for the day. It won't be permanent, but you can get away with it for a day maybe. Um, and if you do it, I would recommend, depending on the legality of it, taking photos <laughs> and sending it to your council and being like, hey, look how great this outcome was. We closed the street and we had all this intervention, all this activation, so we had kids playing through, whatever. Um, can you... Think, can you think about doing this in a more permanent way? And that's where I see placemaking and tackle urbanism as a as a, an advocacy tool. If you're sort of then taking these good ex examples, good outcome examples, up to your to your rel relevant government authority, yeah, as a a test a test scheme. Yeah, just casually inviting your listeners to do crime. But <laughs> I, I, sh I should note that there are very much plenty of permits. Yeah. mechanisms to do no, that. No, there are, and there are formal ways, of course. If you've got the time and energy there, do the formal route, of course. But if you don't... <laughs> and at the moment, there's also... We, we touched on this last week with my guest, but there is an open application process with the City of Kingston for parklets. Mm. And the thing about par this application in particular is yep. that it's to hospitality businesses only. Gotcha. So if you're a sh shopkeeper on the street... And if you're not a hospitality business, mm -hmm. you can't apply for it, that mm -hmm, permit, mm -hmm, as, mm -hmm. as far as I understand it. So what are some recommendations mm -hmm, you can make to mm -hmm. hospitality businesses looking at um, designing their parklets to be a bit more open, to be a bit more inviting, a bit more democratic if when the, when the store is closed to encourage people to use it or mm. to encourage people to stay longer? Can, can you make any suggestions to um, – improve the the civic quality of parklets yeah, because yep. they're they're complicated they're con they're definitely contentious definitely um so i think um uh greenery is a big one particularly if you can get away if you've got the budget for it for real greenery like if you can put if you have the budget for inbuilt planters on the periphery of the parklet i think it's really great just visually um and then likewise, I think I see a lot of parklets that have thought about the interior but haven't really thought about the exterior and it's just the exposed timber. So if you've got any capacity to offer any kind of, you know, visual application to the outside, even if it's just a lick of paint, you know what I mean? Um, and then likewise, I think to go to the topic of 
how to have to get the most function out of it even when your business is closed for example if it's a cafe um you know how how, how can people use it after four o'clock when the cafe closes is i think uh inbuilt furniture so rather than the temporary rather than the restaurant furniture that you pull out every morning and, and take away every afternoon if you can have inbuilt furniture in the park or at least some of it like sort of um bank seating on the periphery and then you bring out tables uh that that's a great one and i think also um visual diversity is is important like th- that there's it's not just one um homogenous design or shape play around with the heights of the seating or the colors of the seating or the fabric you know just some something visually to break it up um and create a bit of intrigue when people walk past and if there's again any capacity i think also um and again this obviously depends on permits and where you're on the street to uh basically um reduce to 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 bring some kind of canopy or something that sort of sits overhead even if that's just a row of fairy lights or just you know two sort of I, I don't know the architectural terms but two you know rows of timber that creates sort of a bit of a like an arbory yeah exactly yeah well you, you know something like that this obviously has to be you know structurally structurally sound, sound and and, uh, and and survive the elements but something that creates a little bit of a quasi ceiling, if you will, I think is really important for human scale. People like that the ceiling feels like it's there, like it's there basically, especially if you're in a street with really tall buildings either side. Um, the human scale gets really warped and you feel really small and therefore not very comfortable on the street. So if you're particularly in a street with, you know, three, four, five plus story buildings, um, it would be great to have some kind of canopy overhead just from that sort of human experience I think they're really useful those are all really good tips yeah yeah encouraging any listeners who are putting in parklet applications at the moment to see how can you open that up a bit more for your community but it, it is a shame though that it is only open to hospitality isn't it because imagine like um a dry cleaner I assume a dry cleaner business doesn't count as hospitality I assume it's um, zoned as retail or something. I'm not sure, but imagine if it had a if it had a small, even a small parklet out the front, uh, where you could wait, uh, while, you know, with magazines or something from the inside, while you wait for your dry cleaning. You know, like I think just small things like that. I think help create a more social street, a more social high street. Uh, so it's a shame we can only really extend our imagination around what that could look like to hospitality only. Yeah, that's my hope for the future with the parklets being taken up that we can be a bit more discerning maybe Mm -hmm. with who we offer it to. And, of course, you probably couldn't give a parklet to any business that applies. But if the application can demonstrate the value Mm -hmm. add Mm -hmm. to the street, Mm -hmm. to the public, to um, the amenity of the service, that laundromat's a perfect example. I'd love to see council assessing that on its merits and, Helping, helping uh, streamline those processes yeah, and yep. even ho- uh, streamlining block party applications. Absolutely. I know once upon a time my uh, little cul-de-sac area used to do that. Mm-hmm. They're, they're thinking of reinvigorating it. So The block party? Yeah, the block party experience, yes. And why did they stop doing it? I think it was the pandemic. Oh, sure, yeah. Okay. Perhaps. Yeah. Well, well before my time in the local area. Yeah. With the street that I grew up in, mm-hmm. um, in the city of Glenara mm. area, they have an annual block party mm-hmm. in the little park, actual park at the end of the street, at the end yeah, of the cul-de-sac. Yeah, because yeah, you've got that infrastructure to do it in. 
exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. so they already have the in- infrastructure to celebrate rather than having to occupy mm-hmm. tactily, mm-hmm. tactfully mm. to, to create the, those moments for, for interaction. Yeah, yeah, in absolutely. Space. I think, yeah, there's, I think a lot of people want to do more, but uh, find the process of doing it formally quite intimidating. Um, even though most of it's, you know, it, if you want to find out the information, you will be able to find out the information, but it's taxing and it's intimidating. And I think it um, turns a lot of people away. So, you know, I think it's, it, it would be great to see councils find ways to make that a lot more accessible to people. And in the interim, I think the other option is to do it um, guerrilla style. <laughs> guerrilla gardeners. That was a very popular show. I yeah. Think, briefly. Yeah. Had a, a small run season on, commercial television well that's a great example also verge gardens gorilla verge gardens which is when people are transforming the nature strip in front of their own property um to you know a veggie garden or an edible garden or or just planting non-edible um native plants uh i'm not sure the rules are kingston but a lot of councils that i know of um allow it it is legal to do it however if anyone complains if anyone has any issues with the verge garden um you will get a letter in the mail to remove it (laughs) so it depends i mean every council's got slightly different rules i know some councils are a lot more supportive of it uh, and others less so but that's another great example of ways you can sort of um reinvigorate reinvigorate the public realm in a way that's accessible and that it, that's still – that's right in front of your house, so that's space you're allowed to occupy. Um, according to most council laws, I mean, probably look up Kingston specifically before you do it, but I would imagine it's okay. Um, and that's another great one, people are – because I think something like – I read a statistic that in suburban areas about one-third of open green space is nature strip, which is huge if you think about it. Like manicured lawn. Yeah, massive, and it's doing – that lawn is doing – nothing for biodiversity um visually it's doing nothing like it could be serving so much serving um people and um and uh, insects and animals and biodiversity so much better than it is and of course i understand council does not have the infrastructure to turn every nature strip (laughs) into a verge garden but you have the right as a citizen to do it um and there's also community groups that go around and support you doing it they'll they um share you know cultivated seeds and advice on how to do it um so that's another great example of of tactical urbanism that has sort of um come about as a response to a lack of you know appropriate biodiversity in your neighborhood and people come up with this solution and it's a great solution and now it is being adopted by by councils which is great to see yeah is a nature strip a threshold space yes i would say so definitely oh actually that's a great question isn't it I'd be curious to see what other people say. I would see it as a threshold space, but I would imagine there's people that just see it as the public realm and not a threshold space. So that's a curious one, isn't it? I wonder. I, I personally would, but I could imagine other people might see that as, as just part of the street, therefore public, not in between public or private. Um, Sometimes yeah. you get these moments where people have put down pavers yeah. through their nature strips yeah. so that they can go directly into their car. Mm. And that for me is definitely a threshold moment. Yeah, yeah, abs- yeah, exactly right. Yeah, so it's it's sort of because um, most street designs will have the footpath, the cemented footpath, and then the nature strip and then the gutter. And so I could imagine if you're – for some people it is – the nature strip is the threshold space between the footpath and the road. And for other people it's all part of the street. So it would be interesting to see how people um, view it. 
Last week we touched on the topic of fine grain Mm -hmm. and these threshold spaces, Mm -hmm. these liminal spaces, Mm -hmm. they are are also the phenomena that enhance and contribute to the fine grain. Absolutely, yeah. And it's I think for me also fine grain is um, the stuff you don't even necessarily – think about like it's just sort of there and it's only when you're forced to stop and think about it that you realize how much quote-unquote liminal or threshold spaces exist around you uh and there this sort of cowboy space in that it's not quite clear who owns it and who's responsible for it and even if there is a formal owner right but i just mean um when you walk past there's this sort of feeling that it's not quite clear whose it is and so sometimes i think it feels neglected for that reason because no one quite takes ownership over it uh, which is why i think verge gardening is great because maybe previously thought oh well this is just this place that the council owns however it's your responsibility to mow it right because it's um the nature the nature strip in front of your property is owned by the council it's not your property but it is your responsibility to mow it so you have a responsibility to it um and so i think it's great to see that sort of dynamic being flipped when people are activating it in a way that they want to activate it through through plants or through planting um in general so yeah it's it, it yeah threshold and liminal spaces are almost what you make of it, right? It almost comes down to personal perception of what is and isn't. Yeah. But they're very important for a quality of life. Oh, hugely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's mostly what you're experiencing when you're in the public realm. You know, not most, but so much of what you experience when you're out walking about is um, uh, a liminal spaces and threshold spaces. Um, and there's so much untapped potential in them as well. I think they're, they're really neglected often uh, from, from a government lens, from a design lens and from a civic lens, from citizen lens. And so that's what I'm saying. It's great to see when citizens respond to that lack of thought um, by, by, you know, just claiming it and doing something with it, i.e. a verge garden. So, yeah, I think there's loads of potential there from all actors to do more with them. Yeah. And, and sometimes doing something joyous and exciting and mm-hmm. a bit silly. I remember during the lockdowns, the wooden spoons. Yeah, the exactly. Spoon villages yeah. everywhere. Yeah, exactly. And it's sort it's sort of like people are like, oh wait, we can we can do fun things. We can play with space. We don't play with space here. It, it's a bit of a shame actually, but you're allowed to. And even if you're not, what's the worst that will happen? They'll take you, make you remove your spoons. I mean, do you know what I mean? <laughs> So I think I, I would, yeah. If you, I would encourage anyone listening to think about ways you can play with space and and um, and and and. But but I, I understand the resistance. I understand when people think, oh well, I don't have authority over this space. I don't own it, etc. Or I don't have permission, therefore I won't do anything. Um, but I'm here to tell you, you probably have more permission than you realize. And if you don't. No, nothing's going to happen. You'll be or you can apply for it. Or you can apply. Yeah, if you're, if you're really, you know, litigious, you can apply or you can talk to the owner of the property if it's a private property. You know, there's ways around it, um, but it, it, it just needs – there needs to be um, – you know, it needs to be led by someone. It's not going to happen on its own. So if, if you see something you want to do, something you want to play with space, just go for it. There's, 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 a, there's a means. Um, and if not that space, there'll be another space. But it has to be um, – self-driven i think is what i'm trying to say there's not going to be it's 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 not going to come to you exactly yeah and the more it's self-driven and the more we see examples of that positive examples and um case studies etc and that then sort of ends up goes up the chains and is seen by the local officers or the local government or state government whoever it is powers that be developers etc 
the more that they see that it's being done and that there's a desire for it and that people are responding positively to it, the more they are likely to do it from the bottom down and then it might eventually come to you. But nonetheless, it will only come to you once there is, I think, a citizen push for it. Yeah. So we have to mobilise. It's showing up for what you want to see. Exactly. In the urban realm. Yeah, exactly. Much like the path that inevitably brought you to government. Yeah, exactly. So what are some of the developments in the urban planning space at the moment and any ideas in urban planning, uh, town planning mm-hmm. that you're interested in and think are really exciting? Mm. What, what's coming up on the horizon? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think, well, oh, my gosh, something exciting that's coming up. This, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if it's coming up necessarily. There's, there's, I think there's um, – I think as a result of COVID, there's definitely – uh, a lot more awareness for pub- the quantity and quality of public spaces available to people um, and, and and just, yeah, a lot more co- like awareness of that and the consciousness around that is growing, I think, which is excellent. And so things like when people took over golf courses during lockdowns and tried to make it into public parks, you know, these kind of things. And um, and likewise, I think that message is being carried through to to planners um so that's really exciting so i think there's there's a lot of progress happening there and i think the other one is obviously the cost of living crisis is and housing affordability crisis specifically um while in itself terrifying and and and, you know a horrible thing that we're going through and and will continue for some time unfortunately um it i think it again has raised the question around quantity of public housing distribution and where we're putting public housing and um yeah the quality and quantity of public housing that's being built so i think that's exciting and likewise that type the typology of housing i think we're starting to think a lot more critically about as uh, partially as a result of of the cost of the cost of housing crisis and and partially also through changing demographics and also because of a lack of space so we're really forced to think about what does the actual um family home look like now and how can we be doing it in a way that's more efficient is it like can we only think about the standard model of a standalone house with a big backyard i mean that's really not a thing anymore essentially and uh as and and in the interim i think we had really poor design outcomes as a response to that and now we're really starting to think about okay maybe the 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 sort of standard gray townhouse isn't the best alternative either so i think there's it we're not there yet but i think that level of discussion at a political level at a planning level is better than i've seen it before so i think it's making good progress and so i think hopefully we'll see good outcomes from that as well that's really yeah. exciting into a new so. era yeah i uh, think so especially so people in communities can downsize and stay there exactly and not have to move away exactly or young people can afford to stay in the area yep. they grew up in or yep. want to stay in yeah and i think the other thing that's exciting is well generally i think tiktok's really exciting because i go on there and i see these really interesting critical debates around planning being talked about on viral social media like i've never seen it before and being broken down in a really accessible way and all of a sudden i'm going on tiktok and seeing people talk about third space which is this you know i've never seen that topic talked about outside of 
um, academic spheres. Can you explain? Yeah, to yeah, third so, space yeah, for certainly. Well, um, well, if you go on TikTok, someone will explain to you in, in a matter of thirty seconds, which is amazing. But basically, third space is just a space that is neither your home or your work. So, first space was you, you, your home. Third space is your um, your, your the, you got your work is your second space, and then there was this argument. Um, this sort of came about in America in the seventies, I think, that there was. Um, there needs to be a third space that people go that isn't home or work. And so people often describe things like the hairdresser, you know, the, the hairdressers, the library, the laundromat, these kind of places where you can um, meet and mingle without being at home or at work. And then there's, there's according to the theory, there are like seven specific criteria that have to, for it to meet a third space. But generally speaking, that's it, right? And people are talking about this on TikTok now, um, being like, well, why don't we have more third spaces? You know, uh, the way we design cities and the cost of rent and everything has eradicated third spaces. And these are integral to like, uh, like maintaining the welfare of communities and connectivity in communities. Um, Living together. Exactly. Being together. Yeah, and so all of a sudden people are talking about this, which is so exciting. And I think think also we're seeing to a degree a resurgence around spaces like libraries and thinking more – there was, you know, this whole – Fear mongering that oh in the in the digital age what what's what service a library's gonna have I mean everything's gonna be digital we're gonna have ebooks what 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 the heck can libraries do uh, and we, everyone thought they'd die out but they didn't they've had a complete resurgence because we've rethought what they are beyond just a place that collects books on a shelf and now we're thinking about them as community spaces and spaces for community services and so you're seeing things like now councils are putting um, social workers into libraries so they're there, available for people that come in, um, they're running classes there, um, study spaces, except, like they've adapted in a way and and really they're, they're functioning as third spaces, which is exciting. We're also seeing that around things like community hubs at, library, at um, schools. Increasingly there was this push for why should schools only serve children? They should be serving the community around the children, i.e. the families. And so now you've got these hubs that exist in school that are there for the parents um, and have wraparound social services. So you can, you know, there's there's um, support, social workers there, there's, you know, justice, law and justice support for, for parents. Um, uh, you know, they run classes, whatever. There's bookable spaces and all, they've created this infrastructure in public schools to service the community more broadly. And so I think we're starting to think about that. We're not thinking about our infrastructure in these really siloed ways. We're thinking about how can everything work in a more integrated way. And and that's really like we're sort of pulling on these ideas of third spaces as well, but, you know, doing it more critically, I guess. So that's another exciting um new sort of planning outcome I think we're seeing more and more of which is great that's what turns those buildings into places exactly yeah oh and that's the other one. Oh, you just got me you just reminded me the other one is you know since COVID with more and more people working from home there's obviously now this question of, well what do we need all these office towers for in the city and so there's a lot of questions now about refurb and that's a whole nother discussion I mean this is so this is, it's a whole detailed discussion around the pros and cons um, from an environmental perspective of refurbing or knocking down a building renew but regardless we're now forced to think about well what is the city if it's not just a space for office workers to go so and, and what are these tall towers for? So there's, there's a lot. And I think COVID really turned it all on its head and in, in an exciting way. Yeah. It's an exciting future ahead. I think so. Yeah, we're definitely at that sort of intersection, I think. What's, what's the number one thing that gives you hope? Mm, that's a great question. I think TikTok. 
<laughs> no, I mean, all jokes aside, I mean, I'm obviously a huge TikTok fan, as you know, but I think the level of critical discourse on there around these topics that it brings to light is just so exciting. And I think it's mobilizing people that were previously not, I wouldn't say checked out, but just not aware of these topics, right? Like when you mention it, it's like, oh yeah, you're totally right. We do need more of them, but it's not that they didn't support that idea. They're just something they hadn't thought about before. Um, and so I think TikTok is, is, is bringing around this new level of consciousness around these topics in this viral way that was never happening with other social media platforms or with YouTube. Um, so that's really exciting. Definitely. And entirely public-led. Exactly. And it's a really important reminder yeah. to designers, to architects, to planners, to mm-hmm. government. Mm-hmm. Never underestimate the intelligence of the public. Definitely. Because yeah. they are all over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for tonight's conversation, Rachel. Thank you. An hour flew by. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonnarong Country. You can replay this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Hi, everybody. This is Wit from Spiderbait. When I'm passing through Karim, aside from slowing down to 50 kilometres an hour and reminisces about doing the Eel Race Road Rumba or the Watley Street Wiggle, I like to tune in to Radio Karim and get down with the good vibes. Called TAD to remodel my place. Said I wanted it to be that kind of place. Knee deep in the Renault, sinking in our fights. Other shonky builders waking me up at night. And Adam plays the boss man. He listens to the customer Don't you remember He built this kitchen He built this kitchen with T-A-D We built this kitchen We built this kitchen with T-A-D We built this kitchen We built this kitchen with T-A-D